We Need Christmas is the theme of this Christmas season, this Advent season. And uh, we're reminded uh, by Susan's story that God is near to us. He is with us. And he's in this room with us tonight. And uh, I'm going to open by reading a passage from Matthew 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to his son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. I have a really beautiful memory of our daughter, Emma, being born. It was a a unique memory. Part of what's been fun about having kids is that we have been surprised by the gender for each of our kids, which I know that's kind of how it was for most of uh, humanity, but now that people can know the gender, it's less of a surprise. My wife always says it's life's greatest surprise. So uh, I beg her to learn the gender ahead of time each time. She says no. And I guess she sort of, you know, she wins that debate. Um, just do most of the work. This time around, I was convinced it was going to be a boy. I mean, my vivid experiences of my two sons being born, it was just kind of like, yeah, it's a boy. Of course it's a boy. I have two brothers. My dad has two brothers. His dad had two brothers. We just, we're just a family that has men uh, in our family. So I expected this to be a third boy. And I will never forget, and nothing to factor in is what made this sort of memorable is my wife works in labor and delivery at Wesley. And so she's kind of like a celebrity on the floor. And so at all, at all times, I feel like I don't belong in the room. I'm like in the corner, like with all these five nurses congregating around her bed. And um, when the baby was being born, there were like 14 people in the room, which I know is breaking some fire code. But um, as the baby was born and they held the baby up, I was in such a state of shock because I just expected it to be a boy. I just, there was no part of me that thought we had a chance of having a girl that I said words I don't think I've ever said in my life. I said, it's a girl, and I said, holy cow, which is like not even a phrase I use. And uh, I was in such a state of shock, and everyone, of course, erupted in laughter because it's just a weird thing to say. Um, but it was such a, a, a powerful and crazy moment. It's going to be etched into my memory forever, and uh, it was definitely an uh, experience to remember But I want you to think for a minute and imagine the surprise that Mary and Joseph have in this moment, 
right? Joseph is already out of concern, according to the text, for uh, Mary, which we know they lived in an honor-shame society. So the fact that uh, Mary would have gotten pregnant out of, out of wedlock, that's a, that's a big issue. She's a, he's concerned for her, so he's going to divorce her. But then to hear a word from an angel that, no, this son is not going to be an ordinary son. You can imagine the surprise of that moment. You can imagine the, the, the emotions, the anxieties, the, the all different kinds of things that are going on in Mary's mind and Joseph's mind. It is a really powerful, powerful moment. Because what is happening is that when Jesus comes into the world, is this powerful, uh, we're going to talk about it this evening, but this idea of incarnation, of God becoming human, and in, in, in this moment, this mystery of the incarnation, something powerful is happening. The incarnation is a difficult thing to understand, to understand that God is fully man and fully human, and the Apostle Paul actually wrestles with this in the book of Philippians. And so I'm actually going to read from Philippians 2, because this is, I think, one of the best ways in which we sort of have a theology of incarnation. Uh, And the Apostle Paul is actually going to sort of read like a poem or a hymn. And so I'm going to read this to you. This is Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This passage, um, and it's hard to tell from the screen, but if you look in your Bibles, you'll notice there's some unique indenting in the way that it's written in the, in the Bible, and that's because this is a, this is a hymn or a poem uh, it's meant to be read not as, as, as prose per se, but as the fact that, yes, it's as poetry in a sense. And so Paul, just a little bit of background. I'm not going to dive too deep into it, but Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. Uh, we think he's in Rome. We're not entirely sure. He's grasping for the right words to say, to sort of speak into where there is division in the church. So he's calling for unity um, and he's using a hymn that many scholars believe was a sort of a worshipful hymn that people would sing in the early church. Now, he wants to talk about um, <clears throat> how God becomes human in and through Jesus. And in his creativity, he uses this sort of poem in order to do that. But the important thing to note is that we kind of skipped ahead in what he was doing. This is in relation to people and relationships. So Paul is speaking, in your relationships, understand who Jesus is. Start in verse 6. We're going to kind of break it down verse by verse. It says, who being in very nature, God. So we have Jesus being in the past and present. The Greek word here for nature is morphetheu. It's a term used in Greek philosophy that means the outward appearance of of the gods, which means when you look at Jesus, you see an accurate and true representation of the true being of God. 
that Jesus indeed exists in this moment in human form, but he has existed since, the, uh, since eternity, being one in the Trinity. Jesus existed as God, but even prior to this day, prior to being in Mary's womb, Jesus was. And then we read, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. What does Paul mean by that? I think what Paul means here is that he did not consider equality with God to be grasped or to be exploited for any kind of selfish agenda. Think about Jesus and his ministry on earth. The man was performing miracles. He was gaining a following. He could have used that power that he was gifted to become powerful. He could have done something uh, in a sense that would, that would move his own selfish agenda forward. But as we know from the story and arc of Jesus, his life ended very differently. If you think about Jesus as existing from eternity, it means that God is surrounded and worshipped by tens and thousands of angels, but he did not consider that to be used for his own gain. Think of it this way. Think of the richest man in the world. Who, who, it's always changing, but I think it's Elon Musk right now. Who knows who it'll be tomorrow? Um, but he's worth billions, hundreds of billions of dollars. Okay, can you imagine um, having all of that money and keeping all of that money? And that money is your money. Why? Because you earned that money. It is yours. You did whatever you had to do to gain that wealth, and that money is yours. Now, Jesus, in the phrase morphetheu, uh, is surrounded by his worship. All of it is his. His divinity, the fact that he is God, has it all. Right. He has more than earned that reality. But he did not consider that for his own selfish, selfish advantage. And that is the profound mystery here. That Jesus in the fact that he is God himself, did not use that for his own advantage. Not something to hoard or hold on to. But instead, verse 7, what does he say? Rather, he made himself nothing. Made himself nothing is an important phrase. This is the Greek word kenosis, which means he literally emptied himself or poured himself out. How? What, what does that mean? Paul goes on to say, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And so here's what we need to understand. I think why this, this theology is important. The way Paul thinks of Jesus is that Jesus is fully God. He is more faith than you and as he is God. But at the same time, he is fully human. In fact, Paul uses the same language. He says, morphe theu in the very nature of God. And the next line, he uses morphe dulu, which means in the very nature servant. Okay, so he is saying God is fully God, but also a servant. He's both. This is how Paul understood this, that Jesus was indeed fully God and fully man. Now, there's an important distinction here. This isn't 50% God, 50% man. It's not half and half. It's not 99% human with a spark of divinity. It's, it's fully human, fully God. To become incarnation means in the flesh. God wrapped up in flesh and blood. And in order for God to become Jesus in the incarnation, he had to, is that word kenosis, empty himself completely. Again, 
and I'll keep repeating this phrase, that is the profound mystery. So what is he emptying himself of? This is a question theologians have wrestled with for ages. What does it mean by emptying himself, pouring himself out? Um, I, I think about it this way. What, there are three things that we believe about God, and he is omnipresent, he is omniscient, he is uh, omnipotent, he's, he's all-knowing, uh, he is all places at once, and he is all-powerful. Was Jesus omnipresent? Meaning that he was in all places at all times. It's an interesting question. I would say no. He was human. He was in a body. Right? He was, there was a physical body he was in a place in time and history. Was he omnipotent, all-powerful? I would say no. He, he was hungry. He took a nap on a boat. He got tired. He was fully human in that he got thirsty. He experienced human realities, even death itself. Was he omniscient? Did he know all things? What does Luke say? He says that uh, Jesus as a child grew in wisdom and knowledge, meaning that he learned new things. He studied the scriptures, right? He wasn't a baby genius. So he didn't just wake up in the womb and all of a sudden he knew everything. No, he grew, he learned, he studied. He was someone who was gaining knowledge as he grew. He asked questions like, how long has, this, has he been like this? And I think he was genuinely wanting to know the answer to the question. He even says at one point, when, when they ask, who's the, when is the Messiah going to return? He says, I don't know the day or the hour. And I don't think he was a liar. I don't think he was um, just saying that uh, as a sort of way to, to work around the question. I don't think he knew the day or the hour. He didn't know that. Why? Because in his humanity, I believe that he has, that word kenosis, poured out. Right, he has gotten to this place of full humanity, and yet that mystery of being fully God. One of my favorite theologians puts it this way, and this is a little simpler, simpler way of phrasing it. He said that he laid down his God card, which I know that's some technical theological language, but um, the text says that he emptied himself. So God becomes a servant. I think of what Jesus says in the Gospels in Mark 10, 45. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away for the ransom of many. I think of Jesus right before on the, he's on the cross, and what is he doing? He's washing his disciples' feet. What kind of God washes people's feet? I mean, can you think of any religion or any, any uh, uh, god or goddess or gods that have the, take the form of a servant? I think you'll be hard-pressed to find one like Jesus. He's on his hands and knees washing dirty feet. What kind of God would do that? This is one of the reasons I find myself like believing the Gospels, because who would make that up, right? That's a weird thing, a weird way to describe an all-powerful God, that he would take the form of a servant to serve his disciples. Verse 8 says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Now, this idea here is interesting. 
It's, it's that his obedience to death was one of his own free will. It wasn't an accident. Right? He didn't just uh, slip up and people killed him. It wasn't a random thing. In fact, in John 10, uh, we see the reason the Father loves me is that I lay my life down only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Here we have a signpost that Jesus is giving to the cross, that he willingly offers his life. Jesus was obedient to God's plan for redemption by becoming the crucified Messiah. It's the ultimate example of sacrificial love. And then Paul says, even death on a cross, which if you, read, if you look in your Bibles, if you guys have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, but at this point, you'll notice the way the indentation changes even more. And the reason is he's actually breaking the poetic meter because it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like a literary way of making an emphasis. He's saying, even to death on a cross. And why that's interesting um, is understanding a little bit about the society he lived in. In that time was an honor-shame society. We see this uh, in modern days and in, in places in Asia or the Middle East. Um, but as Westerners, that can be hard for us to understand that paradigm. Um, in an honor-shame society, the ultimate goal right, is not success and to work our way up the corporate ladder and to, to have the American dream, right? The goal in that society would be to have honor. And the absolute worst thing would be to bring shame upon your family. That's the ultimate fear for someone who would grow up in that society. So understand that the wor- in, the, in the first century, the cross was the epitome of shame. It was a representation of shame itself, most shameful way to die. It's the, uh, the Roman, excuse me, the Roman crucifixion was illegal for all citizens except for one exception, and that was high treason. That was the worst of the worst offenses and what would cause crucifixion. And the Latin word for cross is crux, which interestingly enough, in that time, many people thought that word was actually an expletive, one that you weren't supposed to say. It was taboo to use the word because it represented so much shame. This is why in Hebrews 12, it says, Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame, and laid down at the right hand of God. And so this whole poem is showing us that Jesus is redefining honor in this moment. Because if you keep reading, the poem turns a corner. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, Another way to say this is that it put him in the highest position of honor and gave him the name that was above every name. Jesus here is giving, uh, given the name as an allusion to Yahweh. And Yahweh is the I am, right? I am, I am. In this moment, there's an allusion here. Jesus is giving the greatest honor. He's redefining honor, not as a Roman senator, not as a war general in the battlefield with blood on his sword, but rather the inverse, a crucified Messiah with blood on his hands and his feet. This is what honor looks like. In verse 10, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Um, I don't have too much time to spend here, but actually what's interesting is uh, he's using, Paul's using word for word what is written in Isaiah 45, uh, which is the prophecy of the coming Christ. Um, but he's actually swapping out Yahweh for Jesus. Okay? And so in heaven and on earth and under earth, he, everything points to Jesus, every single corner of 
the world. Every tongue acknowledge that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the crucified Messiah is back from the dead, exalted to the highest position of honor, and he is Yahweh in flesh and blood. Okay, that's a, a sort of summarization of the theology of incarnation. Now I want you to imagine for a minute with me. Imagine being in the position of who Paul was writing the letter to. So as Paul's writing to the church in Philippi, I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be at this church. This is only a few years after the resurrection. Um, It's a Roman colony populated by war veterans, filled with patriotism that had loyalty to the empire. Uh, The central propaganda statement is Nero is Lord. Uh, and, if, and you have Paul who's in prison, right, obviously because he's preaching these things. So it's not safe to go around worshiping and preaching and, and, and having a public church. It's just not a, a place where that was safe to happen. And you have Paul in prison because he was like, I'm not buying this, this Nero is Lord thing. That, that's not going to work for me. He says, Jesus is Lord. So imagine being in a small church almost afraid for gathering because it wasn't safe to do so. And you're whispering for fear of the government uh, hearing you. You're whispering, worshiping. One day, one day, every knee will bow. One day, every knee will bow to Jesus, our Lord. One day, even Nero will bow. That's a powerful exercise to think about how the church may have been feeling and thinking in the midst of their situation. Now, a couple closing thoughts, and then we'll wrap this up and take the Lord's Supper together. This is a hymn about God. Um, It's a hymn about what God is like. When you look into the face of Jesus, you see what God is like. It's not that Jesus was God and stopped for a while and then became human and humbled himself to the cross, and now he's back to being God. That's, that's not how, how it worked, right? Jesus is fully God and yet fully man. It's because Jesus was God that he became human. That's an important distinction, right? Because he was God that he became human. He became a servant, not as a change of pace, but because it's the perfect expression of God himself. That is what God is like. I'm saying that Jesus became a servant because, yes, indeed, God is a servant as well. Are we saying God is humble? Yes, God is humble as well. I think we have a hard time uh, with this. I know people have a hard time believing that Jesus is God in the modern world. Um, If you talk to your average person, oftentimes they, they like a lot of things about Jesus. He was a good teacher. He was provocative. He was uh, a nice guy. He was, you know, people throw out all kinds of things. He was just a, a great prophet. But people have a hard time believing that Jesus was indeed God. And I think one of the reasons for that is we make the mistake of under, trying to understand who God is and then fitting Jesus into that box. It's like we think we know what God is like. We sort of create God in an image and we try to fit Jesus into that. But the New Testament actually argues from another direction. The New Testament says, you have no clue what God is like, but let me show you Jesus. God is the unknown. Jesus is the known. You start here, and we can learn from Jesus what God is like. This is why Jesus says, when you have seen me, you know what the Father is like. 
And he says over and over again, you think you know what the Father is like, but you don't fully understand. At one point, Jesus says, I am, right, which is a clear statement of divinity, and it makes the religious people furious, and they want to pick up stones for blasphemy. So what am I saying here? I say all this to say, it's not that Jesus is God because he is, but it's also that God is Jesus. It's that God is humble. God is a servant. God is the Jesus you read about in character quality. On one hand, God is not scared to stand up to the religious leaders in the empire. He's not scared to give his life on a cross. And on the other hand, he's gentle and compassionate and patient and merciful, and he forgives. So we believe, yes, Jesus is God. We also understand that God is Jesus, fully God, fully human. Lastly, in closing, Paul uses this hymn to call the church to humility. And I, I don't have time to unpack the whole passage, but uh, briefly, before that hymn, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or being conceit, but rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The word humility is the same idea of Jesus emptying himself that we read earlier in the hymn. Perhaps you've heard um, the quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I believe this Advent season, there is a call to embrace the incarnation, the mystery of the incarnation, and our response to that is one of humility. Think about our scripture reading. We have Mary and Joseph Jesus born in the Virgin Mary. God has come to earth fully human, fully man, in full human humility in a lowly place in a manger. And yet this baby is destined to be a king. A king who embodies love and is faithful even to death on a cross. Um, I read a story recently about a mom in Michigan who ran into a, bil- a burning house uh, to save her four kids. It's a really powerful story. You can, you can Google it. It'll come up. Um, but one of the things that happened is in the midst of saving her four kids, she had terrible third-degree burns all over her body. They're scarring on her face, and she's never going to look the same. It's, it really has affected her life. And it was one of those things that I think when she went into that building, she knew the cost. She knew she was risking her life. She knew that it would affect her forever. And yet, she went and saved her kids. The love of a mother for her children is a powerful thing. Why? Why did she do that? Why did she risk her own shame, in a sense, to do that? I believe it is because of her great love, indescribable love for her children. We need to understand that when Jesus went to the cross, he was scorning its shame. He knew the cost. He knew what it was going to be like to to experience great suffering and endure it on our behalf. It was a shameful, humiliating experience. Why did he do it? I believe he did it because of his love for you and for me and for the world. A few days before he he goes to the cross, uh, we see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, I don't want to do this. There's the humanity coming out in Jesus. I don't want to do this. Is there any other way? He, he says those words, is there any other, any other way this can go down? 
And ultimately, as he's praying and listening, to the will of the Father comes through, and he says the famous words, not my will, but yours be done. What Jesus invites us to do in humility is not something that he himself hasn't experienced. And he invites us into that. Why? It's because of the great love of the Father. So my question for us in closing is, what would happen if we embraced this mystery of the incarnation and in that we embraced this great call to humility to lay our lives down for the sake of others? What would happen to our community? I think we become a people who serve, a people who love, a people who are quick to forgive, a people who, who give generously, a people who think of others first, who honor and bring dignity to people around us. We're people that are marked by compassion for other people. And Jesus is the one who I believe can help us live in the way of self-denial for the sake of others. This is the call to us this Advent, to embrace the mystery of the incarnation and to live in ultimate humility. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we become that kind of person, that we would embrace the example of humility that you demonstrated on our behalf, that would change us and that we would live in a way not motivated by by anything but the sheer love that you have for us, that that love would motivate us to live and become more like you. Lord, we take a minute to um, ask your spirit to, to minister to us as we share in time of confession, as we share in a time of communion together. We invite you in this place, your presence be here. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it's in your name we pray. Amen.